the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. Good to be with you. I I don't know how to recommend this to you because it's not fully right of me to do so, but you should read the uh, last uh, president's, uh, the last president of Harvard's resignation letter. And then, in case you don't think things can get worse in the world of dishonesty, disingenuousness, unctuousness, read the statement from the Harvard Corporation. If anybody should resign, it is the, is the members of the Harvard Corporation. They, they are the cowards. They are the liars in, in this thing, uh, even more than she. Statement from the Harvard Corporation, colon, President Gay, dear members of the Harvard community, does one wonder when it began, when it, the, the word Harvard community or any, any you know, community, I, it is inconceivable to me that the Harvard Corporation or anybody in leadership at Harvard or any of these colleges would have used that term. Uh, it, it's, such a, uh, it's such a French Revolution term. I mean, I believe in community, but uh, what does that even mean? Okay, it doesn't matter. That, that's irrelevant. With great sadness, we write in light of President Claudine Gay's message announcing her intention to step down from the presidency and resume her faculty position at Harvard. With great sadness, they forced her to. Uh, I I have a feeling that uh, the, the word got out. First and foremost, we thank President Gay for her deep and unwavering commitment to Harvard and that the pursuit of academic excellence. The woman was relieved of her post primarily for, uh, for plagiarizing papers. She has not written a single book. I don't know what Harvard president, perhaps in its history, I think they've had 30, has not written a book, and yet she pursued academic excellence. That's fine. Okay, maybe you can pursue academic excellence and not write a book. Throughout her long and distinguished leadership as Dean of Social Science, then as Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, you realize how corrupt Harvard is that this woman was, was in such high positions prior to being president. Where she skillfully led the FAS, that's the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, through the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to know what her skillful leadership consisted of. There was the first college in the United States to shut down. 
That's right. I'll never forget that. I'd like to know what was her skillful leadership. Julie Hartman, with whom I do this podcast, Dennis and Julie, which I highly, highly, highly recommend to you and for you to show two young people in your life. We do it each week. Dennis and Julie. Julie went to Harvard, graduated two years ago. And she told me at the time, because we were doing the, this podcast while she was still at Harvard from her dorm room, and how all the rules that uh, about where you could eat and how... E- You'd get food uh, at your door, at your dorm room. Uh, the, the rules were preposterous. The woman led an asinine policy. And, and they write that uh, she skillfully led the Faculty of Arts and Sciences through the COVID-19 pandemic and pursued ambitious new academic initiatives in areas such as quantum science, and inequality. Did you read their letter? Uh, no, I didn't read their letter. Is it awesome? Yeah. <laughs> oh, ambitious new academic initiatives in inequality. What well, this the, the 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 corporation is as corrupt as she. She demonstrated the insight, decisiveness, and empathy. Oh, empathy, of course, empathy. This, this, uh, the Harvard Corporation is as woke as it gets. She, that was what it is. She believes passionately in Harvard's mission of education and research. And she cares profoundly about the people whose talents, ideas, and energy drive Harvard. She has devoted her career to an institution whose ideals and priorities she has worked tirelessly to advance. It sounds like the Messiah. Everything about this, in my view, is phony. Every single word the Harvard Corporation wrote is phony. We are grateful for the extraordinary contributions she has made and will continue to make as a leader, a teacher, a scholar, a mentor, and an inspiration to many. An inspiration to many, I'm sure. Teacher, scholar, mentor, leader. Wow, it sounds like a great president of Harvard had to step down after a, a 15, 20-year reign, doesn't it? She's a nothing, nothing. She's a left-wing, woke, nothing. And so are they. We are also grateful to Alan M. Garber. Did you know they have a, a, an interim president? Yeah. Provost and chief academic officer. A white male, and from the name, it sounds like a Jewish white male. That's like, uh, whoa, they're really really gambling here. Who has served with distinction in that role for the past 12 years and who has agreed to serve as interim president until a new leader for Harvard is identified and takes office. Anyway, it goes on to describe this economist and physician. 
These past several months have seen Harvard and higher education face a series of sustained and unprecedented challenges. Yeah. Because the American people are waking up to the cesspools that our universities are. I've called them moral and intellectual cesspools for decades. And now a lot of Americans agree. In the face of escalating controversy and conflict, President Gay and the fellows have sought to be guided by the best interests of the institution whose future progress and well-being we are together committed to uphold. They had 17% early uh, admissions applications, by the way, at Harvard. That's, uh, the good news is that they had fewer. The good news is it was 17%. The bad news is it was only 17%. But I'll tell you, uh, it's very, very difficult to know if Harvard will get back its prestige in, in the foreseeable future. It could happen, but uh, it doesn't deserve it. Let's put it that way. Remember the article I read to you from uh, Senator, uh, what, is, what is his, <laughs> the Alaskan senator? What was it, what's his, Sullivan. Sullivan, yeah, Sullivan. I, why do I keep thinking Stevens? Sullivan. Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal that I read to you uh, from last week. He visited his alma mater, which was Harvard, went into the Widener Library, one of the most prestigious libraries in the world, and it was taken over by pro-Palestinian thugs. And uh, that was that's Harvard. That has nothing to do, well, with President Gave, was president, yes, it has something to do with her. But it's Harvard. It's been taken over by intellectual thugs with, uh, well before... October 7th, her own message, let's see, yeah, her own message conveying her intention to step down eloquently underscores what those who have worked with her have long known. Her commitment to the institution and its mission is deep and selfless. I just saw last night a video on the role she played in ousting uh, remember that terrific Harvard uh, uh, economist, uh, Fryer, what was his name? Fryer. Yeah, Fryer, Roland Fryer. She played a role in, in, in his demise yeah. because he was a black who actually believed that uh, your first obligation is to truth, not, not to uh, fighting inequality. And he showed that, in fact, uh, blacks were not victims of white police racism. Yeah. She's made Harvard even worse than it would be without her. That is her one accomplishment. Gold dealers are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. So what sets these companies apart and who can you really trust? This is Dennis Prager for AmFed Coin and Bullion, my choice for buying precious metals. When you buy precious metals, it's imperative that you buy from a trustworthy and transparent dealer that protects your best interests. So many companies use gimmicks to take advantage of inexperienced gold and silver buyers. Be cautious of brokers offering free gold and silver or brokers that want to sell you overpriced collectible coins claiming they appreciate more than gold and silver. What about hidden commissions and huge markups? Nick Grovich 
and his team at AmFed always have my back. He's been in this industry for over 42 years, and he's proud of providing transparency and fair pricing to build trusted relationships. If you're interested in buying or selling, call Nick and his team at AmFed Coin and Bullion, 800-221-7694, AmericanFederal.com. That's AmericanFederal.com. Reading to you this unctuous, phony letter of the Harvard Corporation, it is truly, it is run, this university, by nothings. These people are true. They're cowards. They don't believe a word they wrote. That's my belief. And if they do believe it, it's, it's actually even, uh, even worse. So I'm gonna, uh, going to continue with that. Because it's uh, it's the statement from the Harvard Corporation on President Gay. So, let's see. It is with that overarching consideration in mind that we have accepted her resignation. They accepted the whole thing. They accepted it. They didn't really want her to do it. We do so with sorrow. Yes. Well, President, I'm sure they do it with sorrow because Harvard's name stinks. Stinks. Thanks to these people on the Harvard Corporation, every one of whom, Penny Pritzker, Timothy Barraket, Kenneth Cheneau, Mariano Florentino Cuellar, Paul Finnegan, Biddy Martin, Karen Gordon-Mills, Diana L. Nelson, Tracy P. Palangian, Shirley M. Tilgman, and Theodore V. Wells, Jr. should resign, just like she did. And then I'll write a sorrowful letter about the loss to American academic life of these people. Whew. While President Gay has acknowledged missteps, missteps, would you say, would you, what would you say if students called for the genocide of the Jews? Well, it depends on the context. How much have you plagiarized? Well, a fair number of papers. Oh, well, they're missteps, right? Missteps. And has taken responsibility for them. Really, I, I should read you her letter. It is also true that she has shown remarkable resilience in the face of deeply personal and sustained attacks. Do you know, folks, there is no one in public life who doesn't get deeply personal and sustained attacks, including me, but I'm no martyr to the cause like she is. While some of this, here's the difference, I get deeply personal and sustained attacks far more than she has had. I have no doubt in my mind. But I also get deeply personal and sustained love and support. Does she? While some of this has played out in the public domain, much of it has taken the form of repugnant and in some cases racist vitriol directed at her through disgraceful emails and phone calls we condemn such attacks in the strongest possible terms. Man, that really makes her unique. The search for a new president at the university will begin in due course. 
We will be in further touch about the process, which will include broad engagement and consultation with the Harvard community. Final paragraph. For today, we close by reiterating our gratitude to President Gay for her devoted service to Harvard, as well as to Provost Garber for his willingness to lead the university through the interim period to come. We also extend our thanks to all of you for your continuing commitment to Harvard's vital educational and research mission and to core values of excellence, inclusiveness, and free inquiry and expression. It's a core value of Harvard inclusiveness. Do you think anybody who led Harvard prior to 20 years ago would have even known what the hell that was about? That's thanks to the core value of inclusiveness that she became president of Harvard. At a time when strife and division are so prevalent in our nation, to which you have contributed mightily, Harvard and the rest of the universities, embracing and advancing that mission in a spirit of common purpose has never been more important. We live in difficult and troubling times, and formidable challenges lie ahead. May our community, with its long history of rising through change and through storm, find new ways to meet those challenges together and to affirm Harvard's commitment to generating knowledge, pursuing truth, and contributing through scholarship and education to a better world. Isn't that what you think Harvard is doing now? You don't? Well, <laughs> that was the that was the letter, ladies and gentlemen. One eight Prager seven seven six is the number here. It's 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 really fascinating. Here's good news, believe it or not. I really I really want to bring to you good news whenever possible, but I don't I don't make stuff up. University of Penn, did you see this? You Penn professors embark on high-level faculty solidarity mission to Israel. Did you, did you hear about that? We sought to bear comfort to our brothers and sisters in Israel and to more fully absorb the death of this trauma. A group of around 30 professors from the University of Pennsylvania boarded an El Al flight to Israel on New Year's Day to support their Israeli colleagues and students who have been coping with the trauma of October 7th. This is, this is from the Jerusalem Post. This is the first high-level faculty solidarity mission from Ivy League universities since the massacre. Well, you see that? 30. It's minuscule in comparison to the number of faculty members there, but it's not insignificant. So it's Seb Gorka and Mike Gallagher, my two colleagues, two of my colleagues at Salem, who told me about the PhD weight loss program. Uh, and the only reason I took them seriously is because they lost so much weight with it, and it stayed off. So I have discipline in eating. It has never really been an issue, just I haven't been able to lose weight, and I've always wanted to. And sure enough, I've tried it, and now, let's see, it's uh, basically two pounds a month and six months. They, they did it faster. 
But I'm, I'm amazed that I've been able to do that. And it's no pills, no injections, just solid science, no shortcuts, coaching from them. Go to phdweightloss.com or just call them 864-644-1900, 864-644-1900, or go to myphdweightloss.com. The latest uh, PragerU video is delivered by a woman who's been on the show. She's uh, quite a remarkable lady. And it's titled, Wife, Mother, Extremist. Peachy Keenan is her uh, George Orwell. Uh, George Orwell wasn't his real name. What was his real name? Eric Blair, right? Yeah, Eric Blair, yeah. We don't know Peachy Keenan's real name, but I like Peachy Keenan. It works well. Former studio executive, now conservative commentator, full-time mom. She had a nice six-figure income. Then she, according to the great video, she met a great man, and now she's a full-time mother. Is that what renders you an extremist, that you have opted to be a full-time mom? <laughs> I'm serious. Is that is that Yeah, the, that... exactly. It's, yeah. Yeah, so... It, it, Staying home to raise your baby makes you an extremist. You're not even allowed to suggest that to women anymore. Have you had a chance, I would love to see this, I would I would actually, if it were local, I would attend to just see their reaction. If you gave a talk at a college, the case for being a full-time mother, uh, what, what would happen? What do you think would happen? Uh, I think people would boo me out of the room. I think, I don't know if I would survive <laughs> to make it home. I mean, my car would get egged. To even suggest, I mean, imagine suggesting to a working woman who's going on maternity leave, hey, you know what, maybe you should take longer than six weeks or two months. Maybe you should stay home. Uh, Come back. Not that you can never come back, but come see us in a year or a couple years. I mean, imagine what would happen to you if you were her boss or her colleague. Um, And that's essentially what happened to me. You can't, you cannot, I do not recommend saying any of this, especially at places like Harvard and Penn. Exactly. Uh, so I was attacked for even suggesting that a girl would be looked at askance if she said, let's say in a high school class when they are, so what would you all like to do? We'll go around the room. And some uh, girl said, well, actually, my, my greatest hope in life is to meet a good man, get married, and raise a family. And I said, I think that uh, she, she would not be the most popular kid in class for saying that. And, and these left-wingers who had me on their show thought it was absurd that I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> even though that's so, that's so patently true. I mean, <clears throat> to even suggest to a, a young woman that her career choice, her vocation, her lifelong you know, job can just be actually to raise her children is so anathema to the public sphere is so out of the mainstream. And yes, we'll make you a radical. And like I say in the video, we'll make you a social pariah in many zip codes, including my own. Well, yes. uh, And in many zip codes, that's a good way of putting it. So let's play the beginning of your video. It's up this week at PragerU.com. Folks, it's worth showing it to your daughters or even granddaughters 
just to say, you know, I, I'm not saying I agree, uh, honey. Uh, I, I just thought you might want to hear a different approach. Because you, you make such a powerful point about the, the denigration of any woman's role. Because all it did was was take men's roles. I mean, what, what there is no, first of all, there's nothing unique about being a woman let alone having a role as a woman. I mean, the, the onslaught against w- womanhood is astonishing. that fair to say? Yeah, it's like, yeah, feminism was supposed to kind of celebrate and embrace uh, women, what they can do, right? But the main thing women can do <laughs> is bad, and don't do that thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even unique to women since men give birth. That's right. All genders, all of the many genders can do it. <laughs> That's right. It's not our it's not our, our purview anymore. So when you were at college, had I asked you what you want to do with your life, you would have given a standard feminist answer? I mean, I was a little different. I didn't have like big corporate dreams. I didn't want to go to Wall Street. I had friends who were gunning for Wall Street jobs and pre-med. All right, hold on, hold on. I I, I, I didn't want to do any of that. I'm interrupting, which I hate. No, 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 I'm sorry. We got to take a break. I want to hear your answer. Hello, everybody. Dennis Prager here. Wall Street Journal's Jason Riley, who we had on the show. Has he done PragerU video? Done a several PragerU videos. He's a truth seeker, which is the most important thing you can be, essentially, in life, is a truth seeker. Happens to be black. I mention it because the issue he's writing on here happens to be about race. It's titled, No, the Criminal Justice System Isn't Racist. Another academic paper finds scant support for the theory that bias causes incarceration disparities. So the the left-wing lie, and remember, truth is not a left-wing value, it's a conservative value, it's a liberal value, it's not a left-wing value. The left-wing lie is that the reason that there is a disproportionate number of blacks in prison is because the system is racist, not because blacks commit a disproportionate amount of crime. So why can't you say that? Well, there are two reasons you can't say the truth here. They both fly against leftist dogma. Leftist dogma always trumps truth, always and has from Lenin, L-E-N-I-N, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, until today's university and Democratic Party and newspapers. The ideology says two things. One, you have to show America's racist. B, you cannot blame any victim group for any bad outcome. That's You can only blame whites. You can't blame blacks. You can't blame Muslims. You can blame Israel. You can't blame Palestinians. Because truth and moral truth included are not left-wing values. A new academic paper by two Stetson University sociologists, says Stetson University is in central Florida, Christopher Ferguson and Sven Smith. After analyzing 51 studies on sentencing disparities that were published between 2005 and 2022, 
They concluded that, quote, overrepresentation among perpetrators of crime explains incarceration disparities to a greater degree than does racism in the criminal justice system. Did you get the words? Overrepresentation among perpetrators of crime. So it's a really important question that we should ask people to determine if they are truth seekers. Do you think that there are that there is a disproportionate number of blacks in prison because primarily you have two choices, primarily because the system is racist or primarily because blacks commit a disproportionate amount of crime? The the that is the way you know if you're talking to an honest human being. It's a really good question to pose. It's like when I debate atheists, my first question is, do you hope you are right or wrong? If they say they hope they're right, I know I'm not talking to either an honest person or uh, a, a, a clear-thinking person. Why would you hope you are right? You really hope you will never have any access to your loved ones when you die, it's it forever, oblivion for eternity. You don't hope that that's not the case. Whoa, you're, you're a weirdo. In other words, blacks are incarcerated at higher rates than other groups because they commit crimes at higher rates, not due to systemic bias. This is a black columnist writing in the Wall Street Journal. So it's, it's interesting. Would Paul Krugman a- admit this? What would Paul Krugman say? Interesting question, no? Or who's our favorite black columnist at the New York Times? Charles M. Blow. What would Charles M. Blow say? Uh, they would cite another study. They would cite, oh, good point. They would cite another study. That's right. Well, my rule is substantiated once again. Studies either confirm what common sense suggests or they're not telling you the truth. Some will be eager to dismiss the paper, but it isn't an outlier. Yeah, look at that. We mentioned Roland Fryer earlier. In 2016, Harvard economist Roland Fryer published research on policing That also countered the preferred narrative of social justice advocates. Mr. Fryer found no evidence of racial bias in fatal police shootings, which he told the New York Times surprised him. In 2019, psychologists Joseph Cesario of Michigan State and David Johnson of the University of Maryland published findings that were similar to Mr. Fryer's. After controlling for race-specific violent crime rates, they found, quote, no significant evidence of anti-black disparity in the likelihood of being fatally shot by police. Mr. Fryer has stood by his work despite considerable blowback. Now listen to this. I didn't, I, I had forgotten this. But following the death of George Floyd in 2020, Monsieur Cesario and Johnson retracted their paper. That's as interesting as the whole article itself. 
It's true that the, here's another one about poverty causes crime. That's when, that was one of the, there were two, what was it, two big things that caused me in high school to know I wasn't a leftist. I still thought I was a liberal, but not a leftist. One was that the left did not hate communism, and therefore I knew they were morally bankrupt. And the other was poverty causes crime, because I knew how poor my grandfather was, one of my grandfathers, and I thought, wait a minute, would he would he mug anybody? Would would he rob a bank? Would he would he shoplift? Would he rape? And I, I thought that's absurd. The idea of my grandfather doing any of that is absurd. So if poverty causes crime, he should. He, I shouldn't think of that as absurd. It's true that the poor are more likely to engage in violent crime and that blacks are more likely to be poor. But it's also true that black violent crime rates were significantly lower in the 1940s and 50s when the black population was significantly poorer than it is today and when racism inside and outside the criminal justice system was rampant and overt. How do you explain that? When there was more racism and more poverty in black life, black crime rates were much lower. Why would that be? We should put the article up at DennisPrager.com. It's written by Jenna, J- Jason uh, Riley, right? Riley, yeah. R-I-L-E-Y, that's right, yes. Yeah. In the uh, Let Us Ruin the Country Department, California is in the lead. Well, Minnesota is close, Oregon, Washington, New York, Illinois. It's a, it's a race to who can injure the country more. But here is a, here's, a, here's one for you from the Daily Mail. California becomes the first state First state, oh, my proud of my state, to offer health insurance to all illegal migrants. Taxpayers will be forced to fork out $3.1 billion per year in medical care for an extra 700,000 people. That's, an, that's a conservative estimate. <laughs> that's baloney. Only seven. How could it be? Because as soon as they all hear you get free medical care in California, hundreds of thousands of more will come. That's so obvious. Medi-Cal is California's Medicaid program. This go, went to, into effect January 1st, this week. Cost the state $3 billion a year, the Associated Press reported. California Governor Gavin Newsom told ABC News, Everyone deserves access to quality, affordable health care coverage, regardless of income or immigration status. Immigration status. And, and Democrats adore this man. You've got to be nuts not to try to sneak into the United States.
MyPillow is excited to bring you their biggest bedding sale ever, just in time for Christmas. Get the Giza Dream Bed Sheets for as low as $29.98. A set of pillowcases only $9.98. Rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. They also have blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles. They even have blankets for your pets. Get duvets, quilts, down comforters, body pillows, bolster pillows, and so much more. All with the biggest discounts ever. They are also extending their money-back guarantee for Christmas until March 1st, 2024, making them the perfect gifts for your friends, your family, and everyone you know. So go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding products including the Giza Dream bed sheets for as low as $29.98 and get all your shopping done now while quantities last. MyPillow.com, promo code Prager. It's an astonishing thing. Taxpayers in, in California, that's moi, will now be forced to pay thousands of dollars for medical care for additional 700,000 undocumented immigrants. God, isn't that amazing? Even Daily Mail uses undocumented immigrants, this Orwellian speech, illegal immigrants. Between 26 and 49, eligible for full coverage. So you didn't pay a penny in taxes in this country, and yet you will get the money of hard-working taxpayers. So why won't, why won't California be flooded with illegal immigrants and get free health care if I just go to California from Guatemala or Africa or India or China or anywhere in the world? You know, it's funny. I, I, I'm now wondering. This is an, inter- is an interesting question. A lot of Canadians come to the United States for health care because it's better health care in America than in Canada. So why don't they just come in and then get health care here for free? I'm serious. It's a very serious question. What's, why or come to California and then get free health care? What's to stop them? If you're an illegal immigrant from Canada, I mean, you're white, so that may uh, be against you in California. But nevertheless, you, it, you came in. And by the way, you were, uh, you're legally here, but you're not a citizen or you're not on your way to citizenship. I, I think Canadians listening to my show should consider this. You should come to California and get free health care. If, if your immigration status is not asked by a, uh, a, an emergency room in California, by the way, talking about that, how will people get into emergency rooms? 700,000 people is a lot. Yeah. And it is, I said it was on the low side earlier, that's right. This comes as more than a staggering one and a half million are pouring across the southern border every year, many of them seeking shelter in California, in California's Democrat-run sanctuary cities. And then, I tell you, there, 
there is no such thing as chutzpah, like left-wing chutzpah. That the mayor of Chicago is angry at Governor Abbott of Texas. He declares his city a sanctuary city, as does Mayor Adams in New York City, and then they get angry when any illegals are sent to their sanctuary cities. So the whole sanctuary city thing was a lie. It was to make yourself, which is what it is, I've called, I've called leftism many times, moral onanism. Look it up if you don't know what it means. It's a family show, so I'm keeping it, keeping it clean and pure. That's all it is. It's to make your, themselves feel good about themselves. We're a sanctuary city. Oh, you in San Antonio, you in El Paso, you in uh, in Texas generally, and you in California, and you in Arizona, you bear the brunt of all of this, and we'll be a sanctuary city because we're far away. Oh, so, okay, sanctuary cities, here, here are the immigrants. Oh, that is so wrong. Governor Abbott is playing politics with these immigrants. Governor Abbott is playing politics with the immigrants. The Democrats are not. My God. If it weren't for the left, this country would be in such wonderful condition. It's, it, it, the damage is so staggering. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom and lawmakers agreed in 2022 to provide health care access to all low-income adults, regardless of their immigration status, through the state Medicaid program known as Medi-Cal. Three billion. How much in debt is California now? How many billions in debt? You want to look that up? Is that true? Twenty-five billion. It's, that's the projected. And 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 he's now taking on a three billion dollar minimum, three mil billion dollar. Where does the where is the money going to come from? Where is it going to come from? Look in your pocket. Look in my pocket. Well, my pocket can't do it. Even Bill Gates' pocket can't do it. Adding 764,000 more individuals. You see, the, the article doesn't recognize the obvious. Illegal immigrants from other states are, gonna, are now going to come in. Yeah. That, that's the point. Governor Newsom's office told ABC News in part that, quote, in California we believe everyone deserves act. Oh, I read to you that. Yes, that's really. Everyone deserves it. That's right. It's true. I agree with that. Everyone does deserve good health care. That's correct. Everyone deserves a painless, everyone deserves a life free of violence. I mean, there, there are many things that people deserve. The Public Policy Institute of California defines undocumented, also known as illegal or unauthorized immigrants, that is not directly identified in any representative national or state surveys. Through this expansion, Newsom said, we are making sure families and communities across California are healthier, stronger, and able to get the care they need when they need it. All right. That's quite something.
They will be getting medical attention for free. No matter citizen, not citizen, here legally, here illegally. Yep, the the amount of money being spent. When you realize the trouble we're in economically, and economic troubles lead to horrible things, Hitler was elected in Germany thanks to uh, the inflation, the horrible inflation in the Weimar Republic. That and the anger over the Versailles Treaty, but it was it was really the the economics. Economics are, is very important, very important. The 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 downfall of the dollar. The only reason that the dollar isn't in worse condition is that so many currencies are in even worse condition. Why is there so much inflation? They tell you COVID. It's another left-wing lie. The major reason is energy is so expensive because the green Marxists have uh, decided to screw the country while letting China build uh, coal. What, what is I always? What is the term? Not coal mines. But coal what? Expand coal-based energy, let's put it that way, massively in China. While uh, we're told not to use plastic straws. What was the, what was the latest? Did you, was, was that sent today on the amount that uh, more that uh, Biden? Yeah. yeah, listen to this, folks. Biden administration doles out $600 million, that's six-tenths of a billion, to activist groups and universities for environmental justice. Where he is taking oil from the strategic oil reserves. The Greens are, are doing terrible damage to this country. This is just $600 million for, for, mis- uh, for, for yeah. No, this is uh-huh. This is a good way of putting it. Six hundred million just for propaganda. Well, no, no, we're talking billions and billions of dollars being spent on this stuff. The Biden administration is spending six hundred million dollars in taxpayer funds to grant-making organizations to distribute for environmental justice projects. The EPA announced Wednesday the funds will go to 11 different organizations. Do you know what a boondoggle this is? The whole left, everything left, the DEI. You know how much money DE, you know the DEI administrators make more than professors? Diversity, equity, inclusion staff at colleges like Stanford. Yep. Include universities and left-wing groups that focus on advancing social justice causes in addition to their environmental advocacy. Each of the recipients will in turn use the money to provide sub-grants to local organizations to pursue thousands of environmental justice projects like environmental jobs training programs and healthy homes initiatives. What does that even mean? What's a healthy home initiative? Do you know? A home that doesn't use, doesn't use yeah. fossil-based fuel. Yeah. 
Every person has a right to drink clean water, breathe clean air, and live in a community that is healthy and safe. Vice President Kamala Harris said of the funding, what does that have to do with anything? Most of us are drinking clean water and breathing clean air. That's just a fact. For too long, however, low-income communities, immigrant communities, native communities, and communities of color have endured disproportionate levels of air, water, and soil pollution. That is why President Joe Biden and I have put equity, notice not equality, equity at the center of our nation's largest investments in climate in history. Today's announcement puts that commitment into action by ensuring critical resources to fund environmental justice projects. Wow. That's it. $600 million for environmental justice projects. That's part of a larger $3 billion spending blitz in support of environmental justice. Wow. Okay. We got all that money to spend. Not good to know. We return momentarily. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hey, everybody. Dennis Prager here. What do you think of Congress? It's a rhetorical question. I know your answer, but maybe it shouldn't be your answer. Senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute is Philip Wallach. And the Wall Street Journal said that why Congress, that's the name of the book, is perhaps the most important book on politics published in 2023. That's a big deal because they read a lot of books on politics at the Wall Street Journal. Philip Wallach, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Very pleased to be with you. Well, that's probably true. Authors are very happy to be (laughs) on national, excuse me, I cracked myself up. I just, uh, I, I, I'm just thrilled with, I'm an author too, and I'm always happy to be on somebody's show. (laughs) Anyway, it's quite, quite an achievement here. So, I opened up with the question, what do you think of Congress? Why why is Congress routinely made fun of in the American psyche? I think it's almost part of our 
birthright as self-respecting free American citizens to to kind of kick Congress and poke fun at Congress and and gripe about Congress and that's it's a pretty consistent feature of our history all the way down to the beginning uh and that's okay it, they can take it <laughs> and i i think um the the real question i have is whether we can step back from our understandable and instinctive desire to 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 take out some of our frustrations on congress and and tell ourselves the story of why Congress? Why do we need this institution to function well in our constitutional system? And that's what's distressing to me is that it seems like an awful lot of educated Americans have, have lost the ability to tell themselves that story. And even a lot of the people involved in the institution itself uh, are, are sort of uh, not so good at putting putting it together. So this book is meant to sort of go back to fundamentals and say – what is it that Congress uh, is supposed to do for our country? Excellent. That's it, it, people don't think about that, and it's obviously we have three branches of government. So why has Congress? I mean, I unless the the supposition of my question is incorrect, and I always tell anyone on my show, totally feel free to differ with me. But it seems to me that Congress has ceded a lot of its authority to the executive. Is that accurate? It definitely is. And, you know, James Madison thought that the, the constitutional system that, that he was uh, the, the framer of would work by ambition counteracting ambition. That means we get talented people going into each branch and they want to get power for themselves and use it because they want to do do what's right for the country's people as a way of finding their place in posterity. And um, too often in recent decades, we've seen members of Congress who really see themselves in a subordinate role, who see themselves uh, as commentators on what's happening in the executive branch. Uh, They have plenty to say about it, but they often don't feel that it's their responsibility to really change it. Um, and that that leads us to Congress becoming a kind of peanut gallery, which is not a good place for our country to be in because it means that all of the policymaking stakes fall onto our presidential elections. And it drives us a little crazy when we try to make presidential elections decide so much. So isn't it counterintuitive since very few people cede power? And it's especially true for people who yearn for power, which is anybody in politics. I don't say that pejoratively. Yeah. I, it, why would anybody willingly, enthusiastically give up power as Congress has to to the president? Well, it comes from the members no longer identifying themselves primarily with the institution that they're a part of and instead primarily viewing themselves as as independent political entrepreneurs who can use the institution as a a platform to launch themselves onto to greater things like uh, national radio shows um, rather than rather than really realizing hey I'm a member of Congress. Congress is a powerful organ of government. 
I ought to be doing my part to make use of that power. Uh, you have too many people who come into Congress sure that it's never going to do anything worthwhile, sure that it's a corrupt body and that their part in it is going to be uh, What can they get out of it? Simply what they can get out of it uh-huh. as, as they criticize it all the while. Wow. Well, if you're right, then I'm sorry to say the contempt that Congress gets, it deserves. If, if and I know you don't mean every single member, and I don't either, but if it's generally true, and I think you're right now that you mention it, then Congress, at least in our time, has deserved the score and it receives it does deserve a lot of a lot of scorn right now, um, but we have to realize that the materials are there, the institutional prerogatives are there for it to reassert itself in a way that, that would deserve our respect and that would really make a lot of sense out of American government, make us feel that we were doing self-government again, which is a feeling that many of us have lost about, uh, about what's Can happening Can you give America us a, a generalized date as to when Congress decided to become weak? It's unfortunately a pretty long-term trend. Uh, I, mean, I think you could really go all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century um, and see this continuous rise of the administrative state. We have to remember, how did that happen? It wasn't just the executive branch seizing power and holding onto it against Congress's will. No, at almost every stage, it was Congress building that power up because it it thought that there were good reasons to put power in the executive branch, and often it thought it could empower neutral technocrats who would do good things for the country that that needed to be put outside of politics. So, um, you know, this is not not something that happened overnight or because of just one sort of ideological development. It's it's a long-standing trend in American politics. Um, It's not continuous. You see moments... uh, like around Watergate is a good example, where Congress says, oh, man, we've we've done way too much giving away our power to the president. We need to take back some for ourselves. And so Congress in the 1970s was a place uh, full of energy sort of to, to recenter the legislature in, in American government. Um, but nevertheless, there is that long-term trend. Um, it's not like the 70s turned everything around ultimately. So you hold both parties equally responsible for the weakening of Congress? Well, part of what happened, it's very important that the House of Representatives was controlled by Democrats for four continuous decades, from 1955 until the beginning of 1995. Uh, That was immensely destructive to the institution because... Over those decades, Republicans and conservatives who had been staunch defenders of of the legislature and the need for a strong legislature to counter a sort of Caesarist executive that, that they thought of Franklin Roosevelt as being a model of, they gradually began to think of Congress as this corrupt democratic log roll that that they were getting shut out of more and more as the, as the decades went by. And so they really just formed a deep abiding contempt for Congress. And so the irony is that when and Newt Gingrich is sort of 
the signal champion of that view. He, he, from the first time he starts campaigning for Congress, he's talking about how awful and how corrupt it is. And the irony is that this this helps Republicans get back in power finally in 1995. But in some way, they still don't really like the institution. They're 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 in control of it now, but they're still sort of whacking away at it, trying to diminish it. Um, they're giving the president the line item veto, um, right? They're um, they're doing all these things uh, that suggest that that they think Congress ought to be diminished. So they've sort of lost the sense of possibility for how Congress could be a vehicle for conservative uh, values that the American people hold. All right. When we come so that, back, that I, was a okay. When we come back, I want I want to talk to you about if you want, unless you want to add, obviously something. But what is it like today? Yeah. The book is why Congress. Wall Street Journal says it might be the most important book on politics of the year 2023. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. Philip Wallach is the author. At the American Enterprise Institute is Philip Wallach, W-A-L-L-A-C-H. Mr. Wallach is on the line with me and on video. And he has written what the Wall Street Journal says might be the most important book on politics of 2023, a year that is now in the past, titled Why Congress? No subtitle, just Why Congress? This is a good title. Why is there a Congress? Sometimes you have to wonder. So we we have talked about the ceding of authority to the president. And I'll, I will get back to that, but there is another element that I'd like you to address, and that is the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. The expansion of government, which is the antithesis of why America was founded, in my opinion, the limited government is the root of freedom. As I point out, uh, have all of my life. Every genocide of the 20th century, the most genocidal century in history, was committed by a big government. There isn't one college student who ever heard that. <laughs> it, the big government is just always associated with doing good, as if big governments didn't uh, create uh, the gulag and the cultural revolution and uh, Auschwitz. But anyway, uh, I hate big government. In fact, I, I hate big airlines. <laughs> I've come to hate big. So tell us about the seeding of authority to the bureaucracy. Well, I think Congress does it in large part because it thinks that it can control the bureaucracy. It thinks it's just fashioning a tool to achieve its purposes, but it doesn't craft high-precision tools. It, it it's the metaphor I like is that it sort of pours into this increasingly large reservoir of power that builds up in the executive branch, and you get clever lawyers who come in and find this reservoir of statutory language, some of which is not so precise, and they find that sure enough they can make arguments to do just about anything with the existing statutory powers that they have. That's that's a that's something that's different about American government today 
than 100 years ago, right? Really, back then, if Congress wanted a new thing tackled, it was be- it would happen because they passed a new statute. And you might think that that was problematic that they were delegating, but it was a pretty close, proximate relationship. Today, we have this situation where, um, you know, the president wants to relieve student loan debt. Well, here's a here's a lo- here's a law on the books that says. He can make some modifications in in student loans uh, for for veterans uh, in wartime, and but it turns out that the language for that you know, lets him have a lot of flexibility. Why not let's just use this little provision of this law that nobody thought was going to be used in this way to massively discharge ten thousand dollars of debt for everybody, and we'll see if the courts dare to strike it down. Well, in that case, they did. Right, Joe Biden found that 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 did not managed to uh, survive the Supreme Court. But that that kind of maneuver has become standard fare in the 20th century, 21st century, excuse me. And um, unfortunately, most folks in Congress just appoint themselves to be either cheerleaders or uh, critics of, of those kinds of moves rather than saying, hey, we need to restructure this system such that we put ourselves in the driver's seat. So basically, if I read you correctly or hear you correctly, I, I do both, uh, they are really, in a certain sense, idealistic. We'll cede our authority if what we stand for is enacted. So if the EPA does what we won't do, let's let the EPA do it. Is that accurate? Well, I think there's this element of time passing. Also, I I, th- I think that that is that is what they th- that is what the the framers of each of these big statutes think, and and none of them are crazy. Um, it's just that then these these laws and these agencies endure over generations. They take on powers and new problems that were never anticipated when the laws were being written. Really, the only way the system can work is if Congress constantly revisits these statutes and says, okay, in light of our new experience and seeing how the agency has done before, we need to change this law. We need to amend it. Um, Maybe we need to make it do some new things. Maybe we need to say that some of the old things were failing and get rid of them. The legislation has to be the engine of 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 uh, progress, but Congress finds that actually it's a lot easier to just sit on its hands, uh, or um, and that leaves it such that the agency is the one deciding what it's going to make of its powers, and so it makes something different in a Democratic administration and a Republican administration. We get some kinds of balancing just from alternation in office, but we don't get this basic dynamic of Congress actually fixing the laws. So, I mean, our immigration system is, of course, the clearest example where, you know, the last really massive overhaul we had was in 1986. And we've had all this improvisation led by the executive branch, checked at certain points by the judiciary. But really, everyone knows that it's broken. It's a complete disconnect from what's on the books and what's in reality. The only way to fix it is to update the laws, but that's hard. It's really hard. It means taking responsibility. Any Anything you do is going to be 
attacked by by some folks, you're going to disappoint somebody. You can't make everybody happy in this world of uh, passionate advocates on every side. And so, um, you know, making a compromise is, is is risky in some ways. It's easy. It's it's less risky. It's in some ways a better reelection strategy just to sit back and say, "Oh, isn't this awful?" God, is that depressing? Tempted to ask you what you do for fun. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. The book is Why Congress. The author is Philip Wallach, W-A-L-L-A-C-H. Philip Wallach is at the American Enterprise Institute. His book is Why Congress. When I meditate on the, the the frightening numbers coming into this country and you know you may or may not know but uh, the California governor and the Republican the Democrats of California where I live have just announced that California will be the first state to offer medical care for free Medi-Cal it's called it's the Medicaid program of California to anyone who comes into the country. And that is, will begin at $3 billion. It will, it will double and triple because all the people who come into the country illegally will come to California. So the, uh, the numbers are greater than ever. And as you pointed out, as your example, Congress does nothing. You're, if I got you right, the, the biggest single reason for Congress doing nothing and your book is Why Congress, is they fear uh, some pushback and it is much easier to do nothing than something. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think there's almost an obsession with not being made a sucker, especially on this immigration topic. I think that the the hangover from that 1986 reform has just been profound uh you know folks folks that thought that the 1986 compromise was going to lead to a serious enforcement of laws preventing employment by illegals um were just totally disappointed it it didn't it didn't come to pass at all they felt that they had been played for fools and they don't want that to happen ever again and they feel like the most active parts of their base don't want that to happen ever again uh, and that makes it very hard for them to get to yes. Basically, we have a profound trust problem. If you're if you're so distrustful of the folks on the other side of the aisle or even on your own side of the aisle that you can't imagine making a deal with them, then you kind of get stuck. Um, so we've had some pretty serious attempts at, at, at immigration reform packages, um, some of which were supported by congressional leaders, um, and they've they've all come to naught. In essence, because they they didn't manage to bring these conservatives into the debate enough to win over them and get their trust. Um, You know, we're having another round right now. I I think that the negotiations going on are pretty serious. And I think, obviously, President Biden, there's few things that President Biden could do for his reelection prospects that would equal a serious border security law. I think it's in his interest to cave, essentially. So it's a moment where we're going to see whether Congress and Republicans in the House especially 
are interested in getting something done uh, or, or are just interested in sort of framing up the issue uh, for electoral purposes because I, I think there really is an opportunity to, to, to push something across. There's widespread agreement right now that there is a crisis and something needs to be done. So since I try to watch the, the uh, fourth branch of government, the media, uh, I'm, uh, my sense is that there isn't widespread agreement. Uh, I have not seen a New York Times, Washington Post, or L.A. Times editorial lamenting the numbers of people coming in illegally. I may have missed it. I fully acknowledge that. But uh, I believe that the 90% of the Democrats in Congress, both Senate and House, fear the New York Times more than they fear the electorate. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see what's happening with Mayor Adams in New York after he put himself out as an official, voluble critic of the way the system is functioning now and said this is going to sink New York City if things go on this way. Right, but he's not um, taken back the fact that it's a sanctuary city. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's fair. Um, I, I think... The Biden administration knows that it has a problem on its hands. It's a political problem, if nothing else. And, uh, you know, you're thinking about how to win Arizona in 2024. Uh, you, ha you just can't avoid this issue. So I don't know. I mean, uh, Chris Kristen Sinema is obviously an ex-Democrat at this point, but uh, she's somebody who, who still caucuses with the Democrats. And she's, I think, a... a Pretty seriously driving um, legislative negotiations. All right, on we'll that. continue. The book is Why Congress, up at DennisPrager.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.